0: away. I praise God that when God captures our hearts, that we don't have to worry about being cast away, that Jesus is our keeper and our protector. Amen. If you could and would, uh, please stand to your feet and turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, verse 1 through 5. Titus chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. As today we're going to start a, a new series, The Connected and Vibrant Church. Titus is written by the Apostle Paul. The recipient of the letter is Titus, in whom the book is named after. Titus is a, a Greek. He's a Gentile. And him and Paul had a, a special relationship. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, called Titus his brother. In other places, he calls him his partner and fellow worker. And here, even in Titus chapter 1, verse 5, we see the Apostle Paul calling or uh, Titus his true child in a common faith. Paul looked at Titus as his own, his own child. And that probably means that Paul uh, led Titus to faith in Christ, just as he led Timothy. So this is a, a letter to Titus from Paul. Let us read. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior to Titus. My true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Let us pray. God, we are so privileged and so thankful for your word. For your word is a compass. For your word is sweet as honey. For your word is the instrument by which you use to save us. To sanctify us to help us to one day to have hope and glorification, Father. It is in your word. It's not in my words. It's not in my any charisma. It's not in the wisdom of man, but it is in you. And I pray, Father God, and I beg you, Lord. I beg you, Father God, to speak to your people, to feed your people, to have your way. I beg you, Father God, to give me the grace to minister, not to impress to, but to express what your Holy Spirit has ordained This day for your people, your sheep, know your voice, and a stranger they will not follow. Speak, Father. Please, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As I said before, Paul wrote this letter to Titus, and Titus receives this letter possibly as a response To a letter that he had recently sent as he gave a report to Paul about the ministry that was taking place on the island of Crete. Crete is one of the largest islands in the Mediterranean Sea. um, And it is the place in which uh, Paul did, apparently did some some mission work with Titus. Titus has been left in Crete, as verse 5 says, to put what remains into order. So Paul and Titus possibly on their first and second missionary journey goes through Crete and they do some work there. The Holy Spirit works on some people's heart. They come to faith in Christ and Paul like he did with Timothy when he left Timothy in Ephesus he leaves Titus in Crete. He leaves Titus in Crete. Now as I say that he leaves Titus in Crete and as Paul says, as I left you in Crete to put things in order, we must be aware and understand that Paul knows and he understands that the reason why Titus is in Crete is ultimately because of the Holy Spirit's leading. Though Paul left him in Crete and though Paul says, I left you in Crete to put these things in order, uh, we want to know that Paul knows that it was the sovereign will of God that left Titus and Crete. For in Acts chapter 20 verse 28 we read these great words as Paul is talking to the elders in Ephesus. Paul says this to the overseers and the elders there he says pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock of God in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So in verse 5 Paul talks about how he left Titus in Crete but I want you to understand that it was ultimately the Holy Spirit that left Titus in Crete as an overseer of the mission work that God had ordained there. See it is God who sends overseers. It is God who places elders in place. It is God who sovereignly works on the hearts of his people and directs them to go to the area of ministry that he has called them to go and I think that that's important especially in our culture in a day and time where pastors and elders are called by a local church by a vote to remember that ultimately it is God who calls a person to a church it is God who sovereignly works and that's what our memory verse is talking about Uh, Proverbs 21 and 1 talks about how God is, is, is able to turn the heart of a king like streams of water in any direction that he wants. And he so sovereignly works on the hearts of humans to get people to go and to be in the places where he has called them to be. To say that you and I, we are not here by mistake or accident. Though someone may have referred us to this local church named Forest Baptist, we have to believe that ultimately, that ultimately it was the Holy Spirit's leading and it was the Holy Spirit's. Guidance. Now, Titus is left in Crete, and Crete is not a a easy place by any stretch of the imagination to minister. Look at verse twelve and verse thirteen eight, and let's look at how Paul describes the Cretans as he is using a quote from one of their prophets. Look at the reputation that these people have. He says these words, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, "Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluts. And what do you think the Apostle Paul, who teaches us to be, uh, have our words be seasoned like salt, what do you think he would say about this quote? Well, he follows up and he says, and this testimony is true. The Credence had a testimony, their testimony, their reputation was a reputation of evil. They were called lazy. They had no self-control as seen in their gluttony. And Paul leaves his child, leaves his understudy, leaves the one whom he is discipling in this island, To build a church. (laughs) To build a church. You know, that was not an easy task for Titus to do. And I'm sure that Titus needed some encouragement. And that's what this letter is. It is a, a letter of encouragement as Titus is in a difficult place doing God's ministry. And that's why Paul follows up and he says these words in verse 13. He says to Timothy, therefore, rebuke them that they may be strong in the faith. God wanted to to build a church in Crete. He he had a design and a desire to even in a difficult place, a place that has a horrible reputation for probably being being a a party island, (laughs) a selfish island. God wanted that island to be won over for the glory of his son. And he expected his leaders to fulfill their ministry there. For God had ordained some people even on that island. He had elected some people even on that island. Even in the midst of a place that has such a horrible reputation to come to know him. To know him. And Titus, as a true servant of God, he stays behind because the Holy Spirit called him to stay behind. To to build a church that would honor God. To build a church that above all things would glorify God. You know, God wants to build churches in some of the most obscure places in the world. And God is not intimidated by the reputation of the people there. God is not intimidated one bit because God ultimately has the power to overcome the heart of any human being. And he can overcome the heart of any tribe. And the Bible tells us that one day a person from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue will stand before the Lord and give praises to the King of kings and Lord of lords because of the work that God did on their hearts. God leads Titus behind. And this book from Paul is a letter to Titus, telling Titus what he needs to do in order to be used by God to build a church that is vibrant, a a church that is vivacious, a church that is effective, a church that will reach that island. Guess what this letter is? This letter is an evangelistic letter telling Titus a number of things and showing Titus that this is how you must go about if you are going to put a dent in Satan's kingdom, in this island. And above all things, this letter to us is a letter of encouragement to the Forest Baptist Church. The church at Forest Baptist, because we know that the church is not this building. The church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the ones who belong to God. We are the church, the people. And we just meet at this local place, at this location. But God has set us in this community, in the Newburgh, Petersburg, Louisville area, in order that we, like Titus, would set some things in order. In order that we would see the proper vision of the church. There is no more. There's no no entity, no organism that is, is more important than the church. God has called us to do what no other group can do. What no other organization could do. And he has literally called us to save the world. Those whom God has chosen. This letter helps us to see exactly how to carry out that task for it is a a great task. It is a, a big task. God has called us. He has set us here. He has directed you here to be a part of the body in order that this local church would be salt in this Newburgh area. In order that this local church would be a city set upon a hill. In order that we would be like the stars set in place in the sky by God. Set here in this community to shine in a way that will glorify his son. So Paul talking to Titus, he shows Titus and he is giving him this letter to to help to organize the church, to be an overseer of the churches that are in Crete. And Paul starts off in verse one, he says, Paul, a servant of God. So he starts off by by giving us his identity, by identifying who's the letter from. And he we know that it's from Paul and he calls himself a servant of God. And that word servant in the Greek is the word doulas, doulas. That word is often used to speak about or, or used uh, in this culture to talk about a slave, a slave. Uh, so it's, just, it's stronger than just what we would think today as, as a servant. It's, it's talking about a, a slave. In fact, it, it normally is used to talk about the most subservient slave, the slave of slaves. So here Paul starts off his letter by pointing to the fact that he has been called to be a servant, a bond servant, a, a slave. He recognizes that when he receives salvation, that he is no longer a slave to sin. That he is called no longer to be a slave to unrighteousness or a slave to selfishness. But he says, I am Paul and I am a servant. I am a slave. Of God. A beautiful picture. God calls us and he has called all of us who are Christians to be his servants and to be his slaves. He has redeemed us back from the slave block. And he's called us to be his slaves. And that's not a bad thing being God's slave because because now we are a slave of righteousness. We are a slave of of holiness. We are a slave of of his will. No longer a slave of, of unrighteousness. Paul, a servant of God, a a slave of God. Paul, one who is now called to to no longer be labored and, and to have heavy laden, but one who is called now to take upon the yoke of God, one who has been captured by God, steadfast love. And Paul is writing to Titus, and he's saying, yes, my friend, you too are called. You too are called to be a servant. As Titus was reading this, Possibly even frustrated because of the ministry that was going on there. As every missionary and every pastor at some time probably gets irritated and annoyed looking at his own strength and his own power. Remembering that he is not there by his own commission, but he is there because he has been commissioned by his master. It's a good thing when we come to salvation that we are no longer slaves. We are no longer controlled by our impulses and desires that God through the work of his holy spirit and through the work of his word that he now allows us to be controlled by something else and paul talks about that something else in second corinthians chapter 5 when he says for it is the love of christ that controls us why Why does the love of Christ control us? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul was a servant of God because God's love captivated him one day on that dusty road of Damascus. Paul was a a servant of God because God one day showed him how awesome and how majestic he is. And he captivated him with his love. And we serve God, even though God is not a a human that, that needs to be served. But we serve God because his love now controls us. Because we have seen his love in action. On Calvary's cross. We don't serve him because he needs us. We serve him because we need him. When the gospel of Jesus Christ works in the heart, it takes the heart from self-worship and self-serving and it makes it and takes it to a point of self-forgetting. The gospel should control you. It should control me. It should have controlled Titus. The work of Christ on the cross, if it it captures one, it begins to, to sway their hearts to be not just servants of God, but willing servants of God. For our lives are no longer ours, but it's his. Our minds are no longer our mind, but it is his mind. Our will and our purpose are being made through the spirit to become his will and his purpose. And our life's plans are now made to be his plan for our lives. Yes, Titus, you are now a servant. Serving God in a place that you probably never imagined. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I love this. I love this setup. We can stay on on this first verse forever. And what I especially love is, is after saying, Paul, a servant of God, he put that first. And then he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't start off saying an apostle of Jesus Christ, oh yeah, and a servant. But he says a servant of God, oh yeah, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle. In the, in the Greek, the word apostolos, which in a non-technical term, it means to be a, a messenger, a messenger. In the words of Ben Merkel, A apostle is an accredited representative. But in a technical sense, in a technical term, the term apostle refers to a specific group of men who had been commissioned by Jesus after experiencing Jesus face to face to devote their lives to him and to build his church upon the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Paul says, I am a servant and I, I am also an apostle. And we know that Paul was not of the original 12 apostles. We know that he was the apostle that was untimely born, as he told the church of Corinth, which caused him some problems. But as an apostle, he was a part of an elite group of men, a few choice men, who were called at that time to literally be used by God to speak authoritatively on God's behalf to turn the world upside down. Turn the world upside down. But Paul doesn't get caught up in his status. He's writing Titus. He doesn't get caught up in his prestige. He is a servant who serves God through his apostleship. The blood-bought community of Christ should be the most humble and the most self-sacrificing group of people on the face of the earth. When people come into the body of Christ what they should leave saying after meeting a a believer is not that I met someone who is a doctor not that I met someone who who is a, a master but that I met a group of people who are servants. I met a group of people who serve God through their gifts and through their talents. A person who has a master's degree is a a Christian who should gratefully serve God who is the master of all. For God is truly the only master and the only masterpiece. The person who has a doctor of divinity should laugh every time someone points it out because he knows that God is truly the only doctor of divinity. And that every gift, every talent Every blessing that we have received, everything that we can do is only a result of God's grace and we take those talents, we take those gifts and we pour it back into the kingdom of God. We care less if someone calls us by a title. Because we know that we were once slaves of Satan and now we are slaves of God. And that term should not offend us. Because we know that Christ was a slave as well. He was a slave to the Father's will. If Titus is going to build a strong church at Crete, he has to do it with a servant attitude, and he has to become a slave. This is a great picture to every elder and every leader, as that's what chapter one is all about. Paul is focusing on leadership and he's focusing on Titus. He's telling Titus to call elders to lead. And every elder must be a servant. For Jesus said, "I have come not to." Be served but to serve. So we even see here now as Paul goes on and he leaves his identity, he now shows his purpose for ministry and he begins to talk about his mission as an apostle. And it's a threefold purpose it's a threefold mission. And he goes on and says these words and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says, for the sake of the faith. Of God's elect for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Paul saw his apostleship. The purpose of his apostleship was to first to evangelize. To evangelize. He says listen I have been called as a servant. I have been called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. I have been called to the ministry. For the sake of of those whom God has elected, of those whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world he saw his call as an evangelistic call his apostleship was about reaching the lost from from that moment that he saw Jesus he was now filled with a, a zeal to let everyone know that Jesus saves that he truly is Lord That the one that he once kicked against, the one that he once went against, the church that he once was trying to eliminate is now the church in which he is now adopted into. And he sees his part in life as a part that calls him to share his faith first to the Jew and then to the Greek. And we know that as he went throughout his ministry, that he often went first as he went into a city, into a town, that he often first went into the Jewish synagogues, pleading with the Jews, trying to show the Jews that Jesus Christ is Lord by by pointing to the Holy Scriptures. And and after being rejected, he would dust his feet off and then take that message to the Gentiles. For that was his call. That is what he was saved and chosen to do. Paul had a perspective that said, in every city that I go into, every town that I go to, there is a chance that God, before the foundations of the world, chose to draw someone in that town to him. And this motivated Paul. To not keep silent. Because he said, wait a minute, someone in this city, someone in this community has been called to have the same opportunity as me has been called to have the same worldview as me, has been called to have their knees bow at the mentioning of Jesus Christ, and that energized him to the point of a few things. Number one, to the point of anguish and sorrow. Paul allowed this mission to captivate his heart to the point that sometimes He would be in tears just thinking about the fact that there are those who do not yet know Christ. That's what a servant of the Lord is concerned about those who are not in Christ. Because God has filled our hearts with love. And part of us loving people is us understanding that the worst thing that can happen to a person is if they die without knowing Jesus Christ and go to hell. Once heard an unbeliever say those words. He says, you know, I don't don't get upset when a Christian tries to share their faith with me. And I don't think that they're hating me or, or being mean to me, but rather I think that they're loving me for how much would they have to hate me to believe that if I died that I would go to hell and not share the gospel with me. And let me ask you a question real quick. As a Christian, how many times has someone else stopped you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with you? How many times has someone ever came up to you, a Christian, with the message of the gospel? What if you were lost? What if you already didn't have Christ? You would be headed to eternal damnation. Hell was real to Paul. Eternal separation from God was real to Paul. I'm not sure if if it's real to a lot of us. I think that a lot of Christians and a lot of people they think about hell and they think about it in theory, but have you ever stopped to to meditate on what the Bible says about hell? And you know, people try to rationalize it and and we talk about it, right? We say uh, try to do it away in a slight way. You know, well, God is love and And they're holding on to a hope that maybe God will not punish people. Maybe God is just playing a trick to get us to be as enthused as possible. Then in the last day, he's going to say, oh, yeah, and about hell. I (laughs) I really wasn't serious about that. That's not true. Jesus talks about hell more than he does about heaven. It's a real place, a place of eternal separation. And then other people say, well, you know, hell... I can't believe that a loving God will send people to hell and that he will eternally damn someone for their sins. But, but they forget a couple things. Number one, that this loving God is also a holy God. And a holy God cannot live and he cannot embrace sin. And not only is he holy, but he is a just God. And if he was to let sin go without judging it and having his wrath to be poured out, on that person or on someone for that sin, then he will cease to be just. And and another thing that we we forget is that people in hell are still sinning. You know, when we go to heaven, we are made to be in the image of Christ and we are saved from the chance or from the ability to sin. But people who are in hell, they have been given over to a mind of reprobation, and they are still sinning. They are not perfect people that are now in heaven that are saying, oh, Jesus is Lord. No, they are cursing Jesus, filled with hatred towards Jesus. And Paul, Paul thought of this and he saw himself as a servant of God who came with the message of God. And his message was for the sake of the faith of those who were elect, those who were called To be in Christ and in Romans chapter 9 verse 1 through 3 we read that Paul is weeping over the Jews, those who are rejecting Jesus. And the Bible says, he says, listen, I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul says, listen. My heart for the lost is so deep. My heart for my brothers in Christ, for those Jews. Our our soul is so filled with, with, with Christ's love that I wish that I could be cut off from heaven. I wish that I could be cut off from the promise of God in order that they would be saved. In order that they would be saved. Sounds like Moses who also is identified in the Old Testament as a servant of God, a man of God, who had a heart for Israel so, so, so thick and so great that he became their intercessor and said, Lord, Lord, have mercy on them. Not only did Paul have personal anguish and sorrow for the sake of the faith of the elect, but he also went through great physical suffering. And we know that that is greatly documented and we know and we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 23 through 29 all that he went through in order to get the gospel out. We know that he was beat. We know that he was stoned. We know that he spent time hungry. We know that he spent time at sea in dangerous rivers. We know that he put himself in a position to be betrayed by his own brothers all because he cared about the next lost person. And not only did he go through physical suffering, but he went through personal sacrifice. The Bible tells us, and also in Corinthians, that Paul said these words. He says, to the weak I became weak, that I may, might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, that I may save some. Paul was so into his call that he made personal sacrifices. That he gave up some personal Liberties that he could have done or had as a Christian in order not to be a stumbling block for those who were lost and for his weaker brothers in Christ. And what I'm, I'm hoping that we see here is that a, a vibrant church, a committed church, a connected church must be a church who, who has a purpose and that purpose is to evangelize and to reach their community. And and, and this call that they have is, is, is almost a burden because they know, number one, that these people are condemned, but number two, they know how great God is. And they know how lost they were and how hopeless they were without Christ. And when a person sees that life is hopeless without Christ, And when a person reflects about their lostness and their depravity before Christ, when we spend time and when we reflect on by the grace of God, we should be led to move, to open our mouths. And say, you know what? It's not about me. It's about Christ. Paul not only knew that his call was for the sake of the faith of God's elect, but He also knew that his call was to equip. His call was to equip. It wasn't just to evangelize, but it was to equip. And he says, and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Paul said, not only am I called to reach that lost person, but I'm also called to strengthen that person who." is elect and who has come to faith in Jesus Christ I am, I am called to speak the truth to them I, I am called to let them know what true knowledge is Paul saw a large part of his mission was to impart and not just any type of knowledge but it was to impart true knowledge and that's what he went around doing, strengthening the churches, right in the churches in order that they would have true knowledge. And we know that true knowledge is, is found in God's word. And we know that when a person becomes a Christian, that God gives that person an appetite for true knowledge, for true knowledge, true knowledge leads to godliness. And what is godliness? Godliness, in essence, is a manifestation of sanctification. He says, true knowledge leads to godliness. It leads to a godly life. It leads to a sanctifying life. Titus, I've been called as a servant, as an apostle to evangelize, but I've also been called to, to make sure that I'm speaking the truth in order that people would look more like Christ. John MacArthur says that divine truth and godliness are inextricably related. He says, no matter how sincere our intentions might be, we cannot obey God's will if we do not know what it is. We cannot be godly if we do not know what God is like and what he expects of those who belong to him. If we are going to look more like Christ, it is because we know what Christ looks like. And that comes from us becoming knowledgeable, from us getting in God's word and digging in it. Seeking to to learn about what it means. Paul saw that as his mission. Titus, on that island of Crete, if you're going to be successful to turn people from being lazy gluttons and evil beasts, you can't just preach them happy. You've got to preach the truth. You've got to preach in a way that imparts knowledge. parts knowledge godliness cannot be found without knowledge how's your passion how's your desire for knowledge for God's word all of us can can grow none of us have obtained Paul late in his life while he's in prison he calls one of his fellow workers in Christ to come and he says when you come bring me my parchments Bring me my books. Bring me my Bible. Here's a man who's writing the Bible. Who's calling for the Old Testament, for the law, in order that he can look at it and continue to to learn about Christ and how those things related to Christ. Sometimes in the church we run across people who feel that they have all made it to the point of already knowing. But a Christian is a person who comes to the table, who comes to their word, who who comes to hear a sermon, who, who sits in a Bible study, not to just impart. Imparting is a small part of it, maybe 33% of it, but to, to learn. And I don't care how many degrees you have and how much you've learned about the Bible. If you're sitting across from a believer who has no degrees, but who's been walking in the Lord for, for years or even for a month, we should be listening intently saying, speak, Lord. What does your Holy Spirit have to say as they exposit their text? Because we're hungry to grow. God gives us an appetite for knowledge. An appetite for knowledge. You know, if I was to to only eat two days a week, uh, you all would be worried about me, wouldn't you? If I said I'm on a new diet, and I'm not a vegan, but I'm just eating two days a week from now on. And matter of fact, when I eat, this is going to be one meal for one hour. You know that it will show. I will look very impoverished. What's well, the same way in the spirit. Many people are walking around spiritually impoverished. Because they only eat one time a week. And then when they eat, they're just eating from someone else's plate. God has called you. And he has given you the same Holy Spirit that he has given the preachers and the elders. He has given you the ability when you come to the word of God and learn about how to read it in context and and how to receive from it. He has given you the same ability to feed yourself in order that you would grow to look like Christ. Paul said my task is to evangelize my my task is to equip and this not only shows us a little bit about Paul but it shows us a lot about God because God is the one who has given Paul the grace to operate in the way that he's operating and to live the way that he's living. He's the one that called him into apostleship and he's the one that gave Paul a, a super charge uh, 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 of his spirit. He's the one that gave Paul this great anointing and this ability to think in a rapid way and to be able to connect things in the old and to the new and to be able to have visions for God. God is the one who gave this to Paul which shows us a part of God's heart, a, a big part of God's heart. It shows us that God is concerned about the lost but he's also concerned about of those who have accepted him that they would not just come every now and then to him to learn but that they would be learners God's heart is not just for salvation God's heart is for sanctification that's why Titus put such a big emphasis throughout this book why Paul put such a big emphasis on Titus. Number one, in this chapter, we'll see next week to to build up elders, to find elders that teach sound doctrine. And then in chapter two, verse one, he tells Titus again to teach sound doctrine. And he shows that when you teach sound doctrine, this is how the faith community looks older men are now loving upon younger men and teaching them what they know in Christ. And older women are taking younger women and teaching them what they know in Christ. And it's not by their own might, but it's by the grace of God. I once was trying to witness to a guy who was employed at the same place as me, a fellow co-worker. And I'll never forget, just constantly trying to witness to him about Christ. And he constantly kept coming back to this argument. He kept saying, you know, I, I tried, Christ. I really did. My mother and my grandmother, they grew up in the church. Uh, but, you know, I just felt like I wasn't learning. I felt like I was just there. and There was just such a, a disconnect between us going to church and us coming home. And I just didn't see any type of growth. And I went to this small church once on my own when I finally got out of their house and I, It just seemed like the pastor was just rehashing sermons and then he said, I went to a mosque and I noticed that they held the Quran very highly. And they got very offended when someone would misquote a passage out of the Quran. And I noticed that they weren't just coming once a week but they were coming multiple times a week. And then he said, I I visit a hall. Jehovah Witnesses. And I just noticed that were just doing a a lot more reading than we were and that kind of just turned me off to church because I said why is it that the Christian churches are just kind of going through the motions to learn but these other places who who don't seem to have truth at least the truth that I believe are just pouring themselves into these books that I don't believe is inspired. So he was questioning of course the churches but in essence he was using that as a a way to crest or, or, or challenge the Christian faith. We have to be a church that, above all things, is a church that is committed to knowledge, to equip, but also Paul feels his call is to encourage. He said, which of course to godliness and hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages, of, uh, the ages begin. Paul sees his call in ministry as a call to encourage. And, and what he's encouraging is, is knowledge that accords with godliness, but that is built in a hope. And what is the hope? The hope is eternal life. And what is hope? Hope is confident expectation in God for a favorable future. Confident expectations in God for a favorable future. He says, my job and, and my call is to teach a knowledge that will lead to godliness that is based in hope, in hope for and an, uh, eternal life. Hope for eternal life. Paul's ministry was based and was driven by the second coming of Jesus. By the hope that one day he would see Jesus face to face. And it caused him to exhaust his resources and to exhaust his life. And to give up the pleasures of this life to count all things as loss for the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ. He did this because he did not believe that this was his best life now. (laughs) He did not believe that this was, yes, this was abundant life, but he knew that life after death got better. It got better because he got to see the face of Jesus. One out of every 13 passages in the Bible speak of the second coming of Jesus. And eternal life It's brought up over 30 times. I heard it said that it was the second coming of Jesus and eternal life is never brought up in order that we would speculate about it. And argue and wonder about it, but it is brought up in order that we would have hope, in order that we would be passionate about living now. Cornelius Plantinga says in his book, Engaging God's World, that the second coming is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. He says if you are a slave in Pharaoh's Egypt or in the southern United States in the early 19th century, or if you are an Israelite exiled exiled in Babylon, or if you are a woman in the culture where your husband is mad at you and he can lock you in a closet, And call all of his buddies over and threaten to have them rape you. If you are a Christian in sub saharan Africa today where AIDS is devastating whole populations, you don't yawn when someone mentions the return of Jesus. The coming of the kingdom depends on the coming of the king. And the coming of the king means justice that will at last fill the earth. Passionate Christians want and passionately wait on the second coming? Are we, the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, are we living and investing everything that we have into this life? Or are we living with hope, with a great expectation that this is not the best? That the best is yet to come. That my house that I have is not the best house that I will receive. That Jesus said that he is going to prepare a place for me and eyes have not seen. Are we living with an anticipation? Paul said my job is to encourage them and it is to preach in a way that shows them that there is hope, yes, hope in eternal life. And then he shows us why we can bank on this hope and why we can bank on this eternal life when he points to God. He says for God, who is, who never lies, promised it before the ages to begin. We can put All of our basket, all of our eggs in the basket of eternal life because God promised it. And because God is not like the credence titan, God is not a liar, he is not evil, and he is not a lazy glutton. God is immutable, he is unchanging, and if he promised something, he will bring it to completion. So put your faith in that. Titus chapter 2, verse 13. Titus says, Paul says to Titus, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Not just God, our great God. Our great God. Not just waiting on God to return. I'm waiting on a great God to return. A God that is incomparable to any other person. A God who who saves. A God who can change a wicked and evil heart into a loving and holy heart. A God who takes the first and can make them last and the The last becomes first a God who is for the main and the weak, a God who is for the blind and the deaf, a God who is for the the hungry, a God who cares, whose love is inexplainable, who cares for us in such a way that human words cannot express his care for us, a great God. says, Titus, this is who I am. I'm a servant. I'm an apostle. I'm about evangelizing. I'm about equipping. I'm about encouraging and and pointing people to, to Christ. But Titus, you must know the means by which all of this will happen. He goes on. He says, and at the proper time, he manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the commandment of God our Savior. Paul says that this evangelism that this equipping that this encouraging comes from what God has brought forth at the proper time and that is his word it comes through the preaching of his word Titus this town Crete will only be won over to me if there is sound preaching The only hope for this island is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only hope of this community is not the charisma of a pastor. It's not the education of its leaders in secular terms. It's the preaching of God's word for the gospel is the very power of God until salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Preaching of God's word is where lives experience the very presence of God. The preaching of God's word is where dead hearts are made to be alive. The preaching of God's word is what the church was founded upon, is what Jesus built the church upon. Upon this rock, I, I build my church upon the apostles' confession that Jesus is Lord. The preaching of the gospel It's not about appealing to the culture in order that they would come and sit in comfortable, lazy boys for 30 minutes and go home. Their salvation is not built and based upon how comfortable they are or how beautiful our building looks. Their salvation will not come by us using $100 words. Their salvation will come by us faithfully preaching the word. And it doesn't matter who preaches it. Whether it's Paul, Cephas, or, 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 or Apollos. As long as Christ and Christ crucified is being preached. So Paul for the rest of his letter is going to tell Titus to, to find men who can do this. Find men who can do this. John Bunyan, a Puritan preacher who was famous for pinning the Pilgrim's Progress, was thrown into jail for preaching Christ. And he was even threatened to the point of death. And listen to what he said to the judge when he went before the judge. The judge asked him to stop preaching. He said, listen, I will let you out. And this is what John Bunyan said. He said, sir, as to this matter, I am at a point with you for I am if for if I am out of prison today, I will preach the gospel again tomorrow by the help of God. The preaching of God's word was most important to him. Paul said in Romans chapter 10 how how will they hear unless the preacher preaches? How will your neighbors know what it means to follow Christ and what it means to To love Christ if you never tell them? How will they know that their sins have been forgiven if they repent and turn to trust in Christ if you never talk to them about their sin? How? The Connected Environment Church is built on faithful preaching and it is filled with believers who say, Sir, when you preach to us, don't preach to entertain us. Preach to impart. Preach in a way that we may see Jesus. We don't care about you tickling our ears. We care about you penetrating our hearts with the word. God is looking for some people who will respond like Israel in the days of Nehemiah and say, bring me the book. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for truly it is your word that gives us life. We thank you, Father God, for your purpose and for your mission in these days, which is to save those who do not know you to build up those who have committed their hearts to you by encouraging them in the hope of eternal life. We thank you for a people, Father God, whom you have called to this Newburgh and Petersburg community, a people that you have directed here to reach this community, to reach those who may have a reputation in this community for being lazy and evil, for walking and following the prince of the air. We thank you for these Christians whom you have commanded to go into this community to evangelize, to equip, and to encourage. And I pray, Father God, that you would help us to be a vibrant church, a church that is resting on you, that is depending on you and not on ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.